righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us uh, this uh, testimony of the Apostle Paul. And as he communicates his thoughts, it's not only the expression of his own thoughts, but it's the validation of truth itself. And we thank you that there is a blessed assurance in life that we can know that as we run this race, that we can know that we've run the race well, and we can even know that we have finished the course that has been set out for us. Forgive us for the times that that has not been necessarily our pursuit, and forgive us for the times that we have felt that maybe it really doesn't matter. But God, we pray that you would raise up among us a a renewed sense of devotion and commitment to the cause. And in that, we pray that that would translate into not only a greater sense of, of purpose for ourselves, but that we might make even a greater impact in the world around us. We pray, God, as we think in terms of uh, your word, that your word would impress upon us not only the things that could uh, minister to our minds today, but, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be touched. In Jesus' name, amen. Here the Apostle Paul uh, seems to be uh, quite open about uh, the fact that he knows that his death is, is going to be, in essence, right around the corner. And uh, yet, in the sense that he knows that his time is coming towards the end of his life, he speaks about death as if it's some kind of victory. He speaks about coming to the conclusion of his life, about not only that he has pursued this, but he has attained a, a sweet assurance of knowing he is just fine. Uh, for some of us, that might work uh, all kinds of ideas in our minds. They go, well, how can anybody be so confident of those kind of things? Uh, it seems to be based upon, at least in, in, in a little bit of study in the background to this, that Paul either has come to the, the, the point where he knows he's old. He knows that he has lived. He knows that uh, his health might be fading and he's facing certain issues that seem to bring him to this awareness that that it's only a matter of a short period of time and he will have finished his course because his life, in essence, is over. Another common view, or probably even a much more common view, is the fact that persecution was uh, not only uh, constantly filling the atmosphere of the church, but he was well aware that as he's in prison, he is writing this and he knows that the circumstances are going to point in the direction that he will have to give his life for the cause of Jesus Christ because he has lived faithfully to God and persecution is going to, in essence, prevail at this point. He's going to lose his life because of his faith. A, a third thing is what's coupled together with that is the Lord has laid upon him the truth that it's true. You know the outcome of this because God has revealed it to him. Either way, he speaks with a great confidence of the fact that uh, he knows that it is well for him and he knows that it is the closure of this closing chapter of his life. As we think in terms of this, the point we need to understand is the Apostle Paul was quite aware that his race, as we talked about last week, he had run, he had run in such a way to win, and he knew that he had reached that place where he indeed has run as a champion. And in essence, he's communicating to this 
individual by the name of Timothy, and he's handing, in essence, the baton and says, it's yours. And that's important to try to recognize when we think in terms of the race that you and I have been called to run. We might get the idea that I'm running against you and you're running against me, and we have this competition thing going on, and that is not at all what the Scriptures are alluding to. There is a way of running with passion. There's a run w- way of running your life with diligence without competing. It's simply to give your best for the cause of the kingdom of God. And in essence, that's the theme of what we want to look to today. As we think about this, we, we probably can allow our minds to wander a little bit throughout the Scriptures and realize that uh, Uh, Back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, if you'd like to turn with me, you'll find a similar kind of concept, that there is an individual who who has run the race that's set out before him, he has finished the race, and he has attained the victory. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 8, we are reminded of Moses as he's approaching, in essence, the same kind of thoughts, I've lived my life, I've lived my life well. And Joshua, you are to take this baton. Deuteronomy chapter 31, 1 through 8. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I'm now 120 years old and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you and he will destroy these nations before you and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, when he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Therefore be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 7, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, and you must divide it among them as an inheritance." The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Now drop down to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy and we'll look at verses 7 through 9. It says that Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. We think in terms of uh, the beauty of this race that we run, and yet the challenge is to allow ourselves to realize that the kind of a passion that God has intended to give to us is a lot about living your portion of the race, not so much running your own race. 
And sometimes we think about ambition, we think about running our life as, as to run as if to win, that sometimes we might get the solo mentality, we might get the idea that this life is about doing whatever I want, as hard as I want, and as long as I want, all in the name of God, is a lot different than knowing that that baton comes from someone, gets handed to you, and it's to be handed to someone else. In essence, there's a beauty and a sacredness to the whole purpose of what our lives are about. And the kingdom of God is, is a movement that has begun a long, long, long time ago, and it's continuing to move. And the race we run, the ambition we run, the passion we hold must be tied together with the past and must anticipate the future. Otherwise, things are going to get distorted and confusing. And you and I need to realize that in that, the purpose I want to mention this morning is in the end of our race. We can know that we know that we know that it's well with my heart and soul that we've been faithful to the cause, that we have fought the fight, we finished the race. And without that, you and I are going to live a little bit different. But there is a kind of assurance that comes in the journey. There's a kind of uh, confidence that comes from God himself that the race we're running is the race that's marked out for us. And you and I must recognize the importance that there's a difference between simply being busy and being on God's business. And that's in essence what we're looking at. So we looked out at the hand and down baton and the blessing of those in front of us and for us. Let's uh, turn to uh, 2 Kings because again we have another example of a similar kind of concept. But it's to clarify or reinforce the blessing being handed down, or the anointing as we refer to it in this particular context, we think about an ambition for God that is sanctified, an ambition that is holy, an ambition that is God-ordained, an ambition that is God-inspired, because your ambition and your passion for God, if it's simply us, it's going to take one type of course. If it's for Him, it might look entirely different. The big difference is... Typically, for the most part, we know when it's well with our soul. And that becomes clearer and more evident to us as the journey goes on and when we know as well when things are not well with our soul. And that difference becomes extremely important, particularly when it's your turn to actually hand the baton to your children and your grandchildren and, and those after you that it becomes a sacred and holy moment, that we are imparting to them what God has imparted to us. And that's really what this ambition, the kingdom of God is built on people that understand the sacredness of that purpose and the beauty of the, the blessing and anointing of God. And anything else creates a lot of confusion. It breaks a lot of hearts. It creates a world that is bouncing around with, with lost ideas about what the cause is really about. And somehow we create a mess. We trust that we are handing the baton that's been handed to us that has come from a God-ordained ministry and movement. Second Kings uh, chapter 2, 1 through 14. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, 
Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha said, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Verse 7, Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, he rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. As they walked, they were walking along and talking together suddenly. A chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them apart. He picked up the cloak in verse 13 that had fallen from Elijah. And he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and he struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. A double portion of the Spirit. That's a little ambitious. But no doubt as we learn where he learned, and we walk in the scriptures and see the things that he observed and evaluated and he measured and he weighed, he discovered the anointing is not something that we typically just reach to God for. It's something we receive from those that have run before us. And the concept of the kingdom of God is not so much that you and I are out there on solo on our own mission. We are in a a, a blessing that God has granted to the church. He He has granted to the ministry upon ministries over the generations that everything that we hold dearly to and cherish has come down and has constantly flowed through the blessing that God has on the church. And we need to attempt to understand that the kind of ambition that Paul had and the kind of ambition that those that maybe you have known in your own lifespan There are those that walk with an anointing that you know it is truly an anointing from God. And that, in essence, is what creates the movement of the kingdom of God. And that anointing flows down through the people that God has entrusted to, and he's put his blessing on, and those put their blessing upon others, and the blessing continues uh, to flow. What I want to do is to realize that uh, there's... there's, um, 
a lot of struggles that you and I might face when we think in terms of that kind of ambition or that kind of desirable for that anointing. But I trust that we'd realize that in some sense, some of us seem to have a, when we come to faith, we have some kind of an ambition or desire to, to live differently, distinctly, to make an impact. And some of us, it doesn't seem to, to rise to the surface so much. And yet, at the same time, we think about some of us seem to have a, a real sweet assurance that we are on the path of doing this right, and some of us never quite gain that assurance. My trust is that as we look at the Scriptures, we might realize not only that there are common things that bring together the assurance of a clarified anointing, but there's also a kind of connection in which you and I can know that we're as ambitious as we're supposed to be. I trust that makes sense because some of us are going to have a tendency to have the appearance of more ambition, but that doesn't get you a bigger piece of pie in the finish any more than it does that you have great assurance that you know when you die everything's going to be great and others we're struggling, wondering, are we all okay? That doesn't guarantee you get a bigger piece of pie in the finish line. But one thing that you and I can be assured of is whether or not we're in the right place or we're not. That I can assure you that the scriptures clearly contribute and communicate that consistently throughout. The question is, have we come today where we want ambition the way God wants to give it to us and we want to be faithful with the ambition he gave for the right cause, the right purpose. So bear with me as I share uh, some things that I believe are laid upon my heart as we think about running the race in such a way to win versus simply running with all our energy, assuming we're already going to win. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Let's go back to there. We, uh, we touched upon this last week, but I believe it's good to look at this once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. First Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The reason I wanted to read this again is because it doesn't seem like Paul's so confident in this particular portion of Scripture that everything is okay and he has finished the race. It almost seems as if he is well aware that in this race, you've got to keep running to be in the race, and you've got to finish the race to get the prize. And not only that, that there are ways that you prepare strictly for training, and there's a lot of ways that you can get thrown out of the race in the first place. Now, I realize that right away, sometimes our theological viewpoints on our salvation and the security of that right away gets a little jolt in here. It's important to know that the basis of this teaching is not so much teaching how to get to heaven, it's how to win before you get there. And that's something you and I need to hold within our minds because that can create a lot of confusion. 
What's important to realize is the theme of the race is that life continues to go whether or not you or I seemingly are in the race. And you and I are not finished until we're finished. And so the, the whole Christian life is about a kind of ambition that keeps us moving at least faster than we were yesterday. It keeps looking ahead, it keeps imagining, it keeps dreaming, it keeps driving itself. And sometimes we say, wait a minute, when can I just jump off? Well, there'll be a time when the baton is handed to someone. If you've ever run a race, you've ever run a relay, you understand the importance that you finish well and that the baton gets handed in a timely manner or the next guy has no chance. And it's the beauty of the relay that attempts to communicate the Christian life because if we have run the race of our Christian life and we haven't been concerned about where this baton is going, then this whole concept is what what begins to break down and loses its analogy. If I simply have in my mind it's a race against me, against you, and you against me, or, or whatever it is against somebody else, then we have lost the beauty of what it's about. Somebody handed the baton to us. And you and I are called to give it to someone else. And so the enthusiasm and the passion has to do more with someone else than it does our own selves. And that's what this life is about. And yet when we come to this place, that's where your real assurance comes that things are just fine within our lives. It's because we know that in essence you and I are not required to be the winners of the race. Jesus gets the beginning and the end. You guys are with me? you got to realize that Jesus is the one who ran the first leg, and he is the anchor man. He's the one who began and set the tone, and he's the one that guaranteed you're going to finish. The question is, where are we in the midst of this race? Where are we with the energy, the ambition, the commitment we have to Christ? Because we don't beat ourselves to try to make sure that we're okay. We beat ourselves because it's the next person that will either rise or fall on your boldness, your determination, your commitment. It's sad to say that somehow Christianity has become highly flavored with me getting to the finish line and has lost the beauty of the finish line isn't your job, the finish line is Jesus' job. But he has called you and I, he's privileged to let you run a leg of the race. And so we run with ambition and passion because we want that baton to not get dropped We want it to be handed and imparted to someone else. How do we know whether we're in the right race and how do we know whether or not we can have assurance that we're running faithfully? Well, some of us might simplify it and simply say, well, you you know, you're either okay or you're not. I lost my notes here, so you're going to have to bear with me. The first thing I want to uh, consider when we think about it is, is go back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, because it kind of introduces the, the, the whole concept of why, what Paul is, is attempting to run and, 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 and the kind of work he was called to. Primarily, I'll simply summarize that the Apostle Paul was given revelations and insights that you and I don't get every day. He had seen visions. He was taken on an island. He was shown things that no man is even allowed to repeat. And because of these great lofty revelations and these insights given to him, that he was running around with a thorn in his flesh, okay? And make a long story short, you got to understand he's he's slightly in a different league than you and I, but he's running a different leg than you and I. And that's important to understand, 
because there may be a tendency that we'd really like to run his leg, and we kind of wish that he could get in our shoes for a little while and run our shoes. But the leg that he ran was to treat that truth, that revelation that God gave him, with absolute sacredness and get it into the hands of as many people as he possibly could. And all the teachings that Paul captured and presented to them are not his ideas, they're God through him. The sacredness of the scriptures you hold is the baton he gave you. You and I can either treat that with sacredness or we can say, I want a new revelation. I want something that God gives me that I don't need the written word of God. So what he says here in 2 Timothy is introducing it as we look at uh, uh, verse 1, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Notice the, the sacred tone he introduces this chapter. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will suit their own desires. Their will, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The one way that you and I can really lose your assurance is to not really know what in the world is right and wrong and true and valid and credible. And the Apostle Paul has poured his whole life into. He's run that race. He's been in prison many times because people don't believe he really has a word from God. And as he had the word from God, he teaches us clearly that the word of God has been complete, it's been finalized, it's been documented, it's decreed, it's declared. And yet in every generation, there's somebody that wants a new word. Preach. Paul ran that leg. He said, I'm going to hand the baton. He says, I'm going to live for this. I'm going to die for it. It's the word of God. And the baton is handed off to the next generation. And generation after generation has fought and debated and argued and added and subtracted. Even in the closing of the books of Revelation. Any man who adds, any man takes away. We've heard these things. But somehow... You can't have assurance in our hearts and soul if we can't trust what's written and take it as sacred. It's the sacredness of God's Word that keeps it alive. It's the sacredness of God's truth that gives you clarity and power in life. You can't have real assurance if you're not really sure what God wants you to do and where He wants you to go and what He wants you to attempt. The race has been clarified. It's been laid out before us. And to run the course, preach the word of God, and to focus upon the authority, the credibility of the word of God is what gives us assurance and confidence that this is the race that's marked out before us. He goes on so far as to, if we go back into chapter 2, verse 15, is really the point that you and I have to work through. Because we may know the fact that the word of God is written. And we may know the fact that the Word of God is pure and it's credible and you can trust it. It's another thing to come through the valley and the experience of allowing this Word to become the true foundation of our lives. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. 
do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed who correctly handles the word of truth. I realized that um, when I went to Bible college, uh, many people assumed that I knew what I was going to do after I got to Bible college. I says, no, I don't know what I'm going to do after Bible college. I'm going for one reason. Because I took that concept to heart. I resolved in my heart and mind that I need to go somewhere where that mantle is not only handed down, but the blessing of God and the anointing comes down. And I believed that there were men of God who had a good handle on what the truth meant. And I'm going for one reason. I want to find myself and experience the assurance that I know, I know, I know, I know what I believe, and I know why I believe it. And I'm convinced that until you come with that kind of resolve and commitment that the race we're running probably is going to look a little different than the race that God has intended to grant to us. Either the Word of God is, in fact, the foundation not only of what we believe, but how we practice. But until we engage in that process of searching, digging, studying, testing, analyzing, putting it together, pulling it apart, you and I are going to come up with a different kind of passion. And that's important to recognize that that's what Paul is talking about. The way he could live his life and run the course and hand the baton with confidence is he knew that that baton was not simply a vague idea. It is the Word of God and it's handed off. And the question becomes when you consider your children, your grandchildren, and the next generation, your neighbors, your friends, your world around you, Quite often, one of the challenges you and I are facing in this world is, how do you know the Bible's so true? I know where it came from. I know who gave me the mantle of anointing. I know who gave me the Word of God. I know what it did in their life. I know what it's doing in my life. And I can guarantee it'll change your life. And until that Word becomes such a vital ingredient in the race... And until that baton truly becomes a real race that you know how to hand it off, you practice it, practice it, practice, that's the strict training in the race, is you want to make sure that it goes, it goes well, it goes smooth, it goes effective, and you don't lose any second at any time in this race. The challenge you and I have is if we're struggling with the real assurance, or maybe we have an assurance that's not based upon knowing that we've run the race, we've finished the course, we fought the fight. If anything is different than the, the parallel of scriptures, I challenge us to reconsider the beauty of that. The real blessed assurance comes when you know the people you love and care for, you've seen them hand the baton off. You've been there at the moment that the blessing is pronounced. What a sweet event. What a sweet event. Who's laid hands upon you? Who's imparted to you? the truth, so that you will know. Some of us have grown up in a vacuum that we did not have that experience. Some of us have been prayed for many times with that anointing and blessing of a man of God who truly communicates the word. The second thing that I, I think is important is we, we think in terms of, of understanding the beauty of the word of God and, and how that's imparted is, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now that might seem obvious, it might seem well-known information, but you've got to decide when we want assurance in our heart, we want to stand upon the Word of God. There's a lot of things you can take out of the Word of God and use them however you want. But ultimately, they must be summarized in one phrase. It's either me or it's him. It's either things or it's the thing. It's either Jesus or it doesn't work. And that's how that assurance comes is the the emphasis, the motive, the agenda, the attitude is all about Jesus. Trust me, when I'm young and ambitious, when I left college, I was going to turn Allentown upside down for Jesus because I really thought with the anointing and the blessing handed to me, watch out, Jesus, I got this thing under control. Probably within a year I realized, God, please help me because I'm not really preaching Jesus from here. I'm simply just repeating phrases and granting them to him. There's no power, there's no anointing in anything other than Jesus Christ He's Lord. It's not just what we say, it's how we live, it's what we communicate, it's what we breathe. It's what defines us, it's what describes us, it's what people see. They either see Christ in us, or they see simply a different kind of race. It's not easy to describe, but I believe that those that are walking in the fullness of Christ, and it's Christ alone, we know the difference when we're simply traveling off on our own agenda. Sometimes it takes a while to catch on. And I realize within the ambition, within the determination, within the readiness to go do something big for God, we've got to come not only to this place where we wrestle through the word of knowing that this is the truth, and I hold to it, but second of all, I've got to make sure that the one I'm promoting isn't simply me, it's Jesus Christ. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's important that Jesus gets lifted up, that somehow within all of that takes place, It doesn't have our fingerprints all over it. With our blessings or everything else, it's really Jesus and that. How about we look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. This is somewhat uh, close to to, uh, uh, preaching Christ. Maybe it clarifies it a little bit more. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 uh, uh, through 18. Philippians chapter 1, 15 through 18. Now it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in my chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, it almost seems like Paul is contradicting himself. In one sense, he says, you got to get it right. And the other says, what does it matter? Well, the difference is maturity will bring us to a place where we have to be okay. When you run a race, you don't have time to be worrying about what the other guy's doing in the other lane. When you run a race, you've got to realize that the race is the one that you're supposed to run and you keep your eyes ahead. And so in some sense, we must realize that Jesus somehow could take 
a message that comes from not so credible sources and still accomplishes purpose. And at the same time, you and I need to be okay and not consumed with somebody else's running the race. Because it's not so much about competing, it's about making sure that we get the baton handed to the next generation in the right way, in a timely manner, so they have an opportunity, a full opportunity, to run the next leg in an effective and winning fashion. And so we recognize that there's a lot of struggles that do this, and we really can't have this blessed assurance. We really can't have peace until we settle a few things. And some of these are like mountains. They must be worked through and dealt with. They're struggles that every one of us face, that in the journey of living our life, we've got to keep running and keep running and keep running because the victory is, is, is in essence, completed by Christ. We need to be faithful and run in that way so that we know that we have that assurance, it's good for me. Not only is it that you and I gain some kind of assurance, but you'll see it in your children, your grandchildren, and the next generation, the people around us, because if we give them a bad sample, they're probably going to run a bad race. And that's why it's so important to that urgency, that compelling ambition to live in a way, because it's not simply about you getting there, it's running in a way so that the kingdom of God can move uh, forward. Another one we could uh, look at, but we're going to jump ahead, is we all know that you know, if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. That's a chapter uh, that uh, many of us struggle with. If you're ambitious, you're going to get in a conflict. The safe way to not worry about forgiveness is to crawl in a hole and don't talk to anybody. But if you're going to run a race, you're going to realize it gets interesting. And probably some of the most challenging aspects of my ministry is when either my ambition was going too fast or somebody else's ambition is going too fast. And it creates a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of tension. But it does not give us an excuse for not running with passion. And that's the sweet challenge or the, the, the struggle of the challenge is we by nature might have a tendency to avoid the conflict and avoid the struggles that happen in churches. We've all heard horrible stories about churches. We all have 15 reasons to just give up on the church and to give up on God and everything else. The important thing is, you and I realize, that ain't going to cut it. When you're about three days from clocking out of this world and have any assurance at all. We need to be well aware that the race ought to be run, and you've got to keep running, and you and I know that jumping out of the race is not the answer to the problem. And the struggle is dealing with the sweet, blessed assurance that not only carries us, but it's really about the next generation. Because if you and I bail out, there's going to be 10 or 15 or 20 other people that are going to give up as well. It's really about someone else. So forgiveness is one of those huge things that uh, can easily happen in, in the context of ministry and greatly affect the movement and the current of God's kingdom. One more is, let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 6 and uh, verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience or perseverance inherit what has been promised. I think it's important to realize, you know, I, I sort of alluded to this in the beginning when we talked about this. 
is you and I need to realize that this race began a long, long time ago, and that's really what the book of Hebrews is intended to communicate. Because when you get to chapter 11, you begin to see the long list of names of runners that ran the race, and they are to be our examples and forerunners. They are to be the ones you and I imitate. My question might be is, who's your hero in the Bible? Which example do you uh, sort of admire? What is it the style and what is it about the way he ran the race? And what is it about that stands out that gives you that, 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 that focal point in your life? Because each and every one of us has been uh, gifted a little bit differently. We've been given a little dose of ambition a little bit differently. But you're not so different that you can't find somebody in the scriptures. Because faith is about following examples and recognizing those that ran and ran well. They are the ones that you want to look at and say, Jesus, I see Jesus in that one and that one. Sometimes we lose that ambition or that uh, passion to run because we're not sure where it came from. We're not sure who it is we identify with. We're not sure about the patterns and examples. Sadly, some of us may not have any people we admire in the generation right around us. Because until we can begin to see the kind of individuals who run the race with a strong commitment to the Word of God, they've got a great devotion to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They're not interested in preaching anything else but Jesus and Him crucified and the Lordship of Christ they're uh, recognizing that uh, there are people with a deep devotion to have a clear record with the offenses they may have had at other people. They walk in an attitude of forgiveness and grace, and they have a clear recognition that this is the way to live. This is the way we ought to do. The scriptures quite often talk about the patterns of faith. They talk about the examples of people that follow this pattern. Keep your eye upon them. Most importantly, Hebrews chapter 12 kind of clarifies that though we see many positive examples, we see those that have run the race. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The passion of the race doesn't always mean you're up front. Typically, the passion of the race, many times you're going to look like you're losing, but you know you're winning. The beauty of the power of God's grace is not necessarily to give you an earthly trophy. You get heavenly one. Father, we pause before you because we realize that there's many things that are probably still rather vague until we keep running. Then we learn. Then we grow. Then we attain. We pray, Lord, we realize that uh, the course that we run, though it might seem kind of lonely at times, we realize that we need to keep looking ahead. We know the individuals that were instrumental in bringing us to this place, and we're confident that you will reveal to us the ones we are to hand the baton off to. We pray that we would keep and maintain the sacred anointing. We might live in a way that that passion is indeed one that comes from you, 
not simply generated because of some idea we have, but may our passion, our ambition, become sanctified through the sweet favor of your blessing on our lives. We give you thanks and we praise you for what you want to accomplish. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Announcement? Okay, she has an announcement before you leave. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day.